Hi there. I'm Brett McGarry. He's Greg Mackling. I'm kind of uh, yawny right now. Pizza lunch was <laughs> delicious, and thank you, Chorus, for feeding us. But I am I'm kind of sleepy. I was typing out an email just before we came on the air, and I was thinking exactly the same thing. I could really use a nap right about now. And if you need a nap, maybe you've come to the right place. A uh, nap-inducing radio. Someone will promise that. Someone once told me that their dog would fall asleep listening to me on the radio on overnights, I guess, on co- when Coast to Coast AM would be on when I used to do overnight news. They'd turn on the news and their dog would fall asleep whenever Brett McGarry came on to read the news. I think there's a backhanded compliment in there somewhere. You just got to dig really deep for that, Brett. I think that was the joke, as yes, McVeigh would say. that was the joke. <laughs> Jeff Fortier. I'm going to press play on something in a minute here, and then I'll just get you to fade it down so we can talk over something. We mentioned it uh, before we came on the air as we were visiting with Jeff Courier 40 years ago today. Star Wars made its debut in the theaters across North America. And let me tell you what, based on the original trailer, I'm not certain I ever would have laid out any money to see it. Oh, no. Let's have a listen then. Somewhere in space. This may all be happening right now. 20th Century Fox and George Lucas, the man who brought you American graffiti, now bring you an adventure unlike anything on your planet. Star Wars. Here they come. The story of a boy, a girl, and a universe. <laughs> a boy, a girl, and a universe. I don't know, man. Shouldn't it be galaxy? Not a universe, but a galaxy. Well, you know, who wrote this? You, you never know who writes these things. The people that write the headline and the people who write the story are quite often two different people. So I'm guessing in this case, it might be someone separate. I'm putting money on the fact that George Lucas did not write the text for the trailer. Probably. And when you imagine that American Graffiti was the film that they were holding up as George Lucas's great accomplishment and a reason why you should come and see this film, for a lot of people, that wouldn't have made sense. Yeah. I have this... Is it looping I think that's coming from my website, so I'm just going to... I have the Internet Movie Database open, and I think it's doing... it's, It's very frustrating when those... Websites just kick on arbitrarily like that. Just whenever you click, whenever you hover your mouse over a particular spot on the screen. So, yeah, it's a goofy trailer, but my goodness, I can't think... I don't know that I can think of any other film. And listen, I could be wrong, but when you think of films in the last four decades that have had a greater impact on all of movies, is there one? I don't know. I don't think there is, and of course, I'm of the generation I was right in the heart of the demographic who they were looking at. And when you look at some of these stories, I found this uh, from the Hollywood reporter and star Wars flashback when no theater wanted to show the movie in 1977, Uh, five veteran distribution executives who were there when George Lucas's first installment of the space saga was set to premiere. Look back on the challenges that came with being part of movie history The force was definitely not with Star Wars in the months leading up to its release over Memorial Day weekend in 1977. Even executives at 20th Century Fox had their doubts. The Other Side of Midnight 
based on Sidney Sheldon's pot boiler, was supposed to be the studio's big summer hit, while George Lucas's movie was considered the B-track for theater owners nationwide. In those days, film buyers had to bid blind for titles. Trade screenings happened at the 11th hour. The decisions, right or wrong, defined careers. Here, the Hollywood Reporter talks to five buyers who were part of Star Wars Revolution. After opening on just 42 screens, the film expanded to 1,750 and stayed in theaters for over a year on the way to becoming Hollywood players Eric Lomas. Uh, who else was on here? Chuck, uh, Chuck Vine. Uh, Bob Lanahan and Travis Reed and Larry Gleason, they talked to them about uh, that fateful decision to buy or not book Star Wars. And uh, for most of them, the fact that they got them in the theater at all was because they were trying to get another film, this, The Other Side of Midnight, into into their theaters. Really bizarre story. Yeah, and it, well, hey, I mean, and we the, the rest, as they say, is history. Jeff Courier was referencing how Alec Guinness, who played Obi-Wan Kenobi, kind of hated Star Wars. And so I Googled it. Alec Guinness hates Star Wars. And I found the headline. <laughs> it's just that. It's called Alec Guinness, a.k.a. Obi-Wan Kenobi, kind of hated Star Wars. This is from a website called DangerousMinds.net. It's an article from October 2013. And it says, I'll just read you a little bit. Star Wars may have represented a kickstart for Alec Guinness's career, as well as a wholly unexpected windfall when his share of the gross turned out to be far more lucrative than he had any right to expect. But on the whole, Guinness seemed annoyed by the whole idea of George Lucas's space opera. Also, he was kind of terrible at remembering people's names. In Alec Guinness, the, un- the authorized biography, Piers Paul read gives readers a glimpse at some correspondence and diaries written by Guinness while Star Wars, later christened Star Wars A New Hope, was being filmed. In a, and I'll just read one paragraph here. In a letter dated December 22, 1975, Guinness wrote a friend. I have been offered a movie, which I may accept if they come up with proper money. London and North Africa, starting in mid-March, a.k.a. that's where they were filming. Science fiction, which gives me pause but it is to be directed by Paul Lucas, who did American <laughs> Graffiti, which makes me feel I should. Big part, fairy tale rubbish, but could be interesting, perhaps. <laughs> well, you have to give Alec Guinness a break on this because George Lucas himself wasn't very confident either. This came from CNN. George Lucas wasn't hopeful. The director was so sure the film would flop that instead of attending the premiere, he went on vacation to Hawaii with his good friend Steven Spielberg. Oh. Uh-huh. <laughs> so how about that? That worked out uh, for everyone as well because they came up for the idea for Raiders of the Lost Ark yeah. during that trip. So uh, he ignored one blockbuster. His gut was wrong, and him and Spielberg came up with another blockbuster series uh, while Lucas was trying to hide from the disaster he believes Star Wars might be. Now, you went to see this film a whole lot in theaters, yes? 100%, yeah. How many times? Uh, I, I think it, uh, at least a dozen. It may have been more than that. I remember my my parents had a Betamax, a Beta VCR. It was uh, <laughs> I don't know how I, like how big it was, but at the time, because I was little, I was four years old. It was huge. I'm sure it was at least 
a foot and a half across and probably a foot deep and I want to say like eight inches in height and probably weighed 75 pounds. And when you push the eject button, it wouldn't, it would truly eject. It was like <laughs> Threw an, the tape across well, the and room. It, it popped up. So it was like, Ba-da-dum! yep. Um, so it was like a true ejector seat. And I think I watched, I feel like I watched that movie 50 times when I was a kid. It was probably five, but it was, I watched it repeatedly over and over. I did have the opportunity to see it in theater. They were doing a, a double, uh, showing of Star Wars and then The Empire Strikes Back at the oh, really? Capitol Theater before they tore it down. Oh, that would have been something. I think that was in 1982, so I would have been five uh, before Return of the Jedi came out oh, in 83. At the I, rem- I think I remember that now. Yeah, okay, that sounds that sounds somewhat familiar, seeing both films in the same theater. Yeah, I might remember that. Yeah, that was at the Capitol. It was pretty neat. Although I, I do remember being a brat in the movie theater, and my dad told me that if I don't, if I don't stop acting like a jerk, we're going to have to move seats. And sure enough, we had to move away from the crowd and go sit in the far corner. And then I, the, my vantage point for the screen was lousy, and I, I was even more miserable. I was insufferable. I as wonder a child. If, would that have been before they divided the Capitol into two theaters? I wonder because mm. it was just the capital and then it turned into capital one and two i think they just divided it at the upper balcony and put a floor in and then it had they had two theaters there but uh i I know i saw it at the met at least once and it was usually at grand park and i know i saw it at the king's theater at least once as well so uh good memories uh share your star wars memories with us shoot us a text 204-780-6868 jason sent us a text message here Uh, I thought it was pretty insightful with regards to Star Wars. Uh, I got to scroll down here because we're getting all of these uh, texts. People wanting Blue Bombers season tickets. It's quite offensive, uh, but it's not really if there's the hint that you're getting this afternoon. Hey, Brett, the funny thing is the reason why the originals are so good is because Lucas used ideas from other people and allowed other people on set to contribute to the production of the movie. When Lucas took over total control, he cheaped out and used a a blue screen. The writing was horrific in the movies. The story makes zero sense, and that's because George took over and stopped listening to people with real insight. I won't even bother watching the new ones. They just harm the originals. When you say, Jason, the new ones, are you talking about the prequels, episodes one, two, and three, or do you include episode seven in that as well? Because episode seven is not like the prequels. So that's a completely different discussion, and that's a, a real nerdy Pandora's box that we don't yeah, need to get into. But he's right. George Lucas became a huge control freak, and he's got a big ego, and he just, yeah, anyway. Uh, I'm, I'm still happy that he created Star Wars, because, man, I love Star Wars. But some of the best, most fun you can have 90 minutes or 100 minutes at a time, without question. How about Love Actually? You asked me, have you seen this movie? I'm like, yeah, I've seen that movie. Who's in that? Hugh Grant, yeah. And then you lifted it off a couple of people, and I said Julia Roberts. No, no, you're thinking of Notting Hill. Yeah. Which I have seen. I watched the trailer for Love Actually. I have not seen this film. I'll tell you why we're bringing up Love Actually in a moment. We'll have a look at your forecast, though, up first. Seems to me that love is everywhere. Often it's not particularly dignified or newsworthy, but it's always there. If you look for it, I've got a sneaky feeling you'll find that love actually is all around. All you need is love. 
That is from the 2003 smash hit film Love Actually, one of my favorite films of the first decade of this century, largely because of the antics of the great British actor Bill Nye, not Bill Nye the science guy, but the actor playing an aging rocker trying to turn one of his old songs into a Christmas jam. I feel it in my fingers. In my fingers. I feel it in my toes. Feel it in my toes. Yeah. Love is all around. Oh, f- head and hole. <laughs> Start again. Christmas is all around me. So the reason why we're bringing this up, yesterday, Greg, I had a bit of a, a bit of a panic attack. I'm watching Pirates of the Caribbean. Dead men tell no tales. And halfway through the film, just at random, it kind of hits me. Oh my God, did I forget to set my PVR for Red Nose Day? This is a thing that NBC does. They launched it a couple of years ago. It's um, it's It started in the US, uh, I think, just over two years ago. It's now on in the UK. They raise money and awareness for kids living in poverty. So they do like a comedy special and it ra- they've raised $60 million in two years. Which pretty is pretty cool. So it's fairly impressive. So for this year, because it's in the UK as well now, they got the cast of Love Actually, almost all of them, to come back and reunite for Red Nose Day, actually. And it reunites a bunch of the members of the all-star cast, which included Liam Neeson and uh, now grown-up Thomas Brody Sangster, who's been in Game of Thrones. Uh, Bill Nye is back. What's the best sex you ever had? It's definitely one of the Kardashians. But which one, Mike? Which one? (laughs) That's uh, if you haven't seen the first film, they ask him. About Britney Spears? He says something about Britney Spears? That's in the trailer? (laughs) Yeah, it's in the trailer. So if you've not seen the film Love Actually, it's kind of a, a story about all different aspects of love, whether it's falling in love or love for a child or love for a friend or whatever uh the loss of love you know maybe you're being there's one couple where uh the guy is cheating on the wife so it just kind of looks at all these different stories and how they all connect and i think it's a wonderful little film so they got them all to come back including andrew lincoln who plays rick grimes in the walking dead there's a scene i'm just gonna kill that there's a scene in Love actually, where he's standing outside. He's in love with Kira Knightley in the film, even though she's married to his best friend. And he's standing outside. It's kind of a creepy scene because he's carrying those like giant note cards. Like, I guess that's a Bob Dylan thing. Bob Dylan video, yep. So uh in that film, he's clean cut and he's got short hair, he's completely shaven. Now he's still in his walking dead look and he's got his scruffy beard and his longer hair. They actually referenced that, they incorporated into this reunion show. So that's on tonight. Uh, I don't know what time the actual reunion is because I think it's like 15 minutes long, but the hour-long special is at 9 o'clock Fantastic. on NBC. So I'm excited about that. You got I can loan you Love Actually on Please Blu-ray. Please do. I will uh, on Blu-ray. Do you have a Blu-ray player? <sighs> no, I guess I'll have to rent it on video on demand you can is what I'll have that. to do. Well, here, let me just look on the Netflix and see if it's there. Okay. Love uh, Actually, 2003... Hugh Grant does it for me. Did you see Kira, Kira Knightley's in this? Yes. Liam Neeson. Huge cast. Chiwetel Ejiofor. Wow. I'm, uh, yeah, I can't believe I missed this. Based on the year, though, I'm not surprised. I had a little bit going on in 2003, but I'm really kind of shocked 
I was certain I'd seen this film, but once I watched the trailer, it confirmed that I had not seen a film that it seems everyone has seen. Not on the Netflix? Does not look like it's on Netflix. All right, I'll have to cough up a few bucks on the show and demand to catch up to that movie. I'll do that over the weekend, I promise. I will see. my. It's possible that I have a a Blu-ray DVD combination. You know, a lot of times you get those... Ah, oh, crap. I was trying to log into the Shaw. You're far too kind. <sighs> I'll far too it. kind. We'll You're such a, a multitasker. To, we'll find a way for you to watch this film. Oh, also on the subject of what's on TV tonight, I should also mention this. Uh, season two of the global television show Private Eyes, starring Jason Priestley, returns tonight. That's uh, where he plays a private, private eye. <laughs> uh, actually, he's a, he's a former pro athlete who teams up with a PI, and they form this unlikely investigative team. So that got renewed for a second season, did it? Yeah. So was that, the first season any good? Uh, I know it's a global property, so you might uh, be hesitant to pan it. But <laughs> No, I wouldn't be hesitant to pan not it. Not in any way? No. If, okay. If, if, if Global was running some garbage TV I, on the couch potatoes, I have no problem saying this stinks. I like how honest you are. So is this worth the watch? I have watched a few episodes of it. I mean, I like Jason Priestley. Oh, he's he's funny he as all can be, I think. Because he, he was known for, you know, being the pretty boy in 90210, but he's way more, you know, way more range than what that. What was that show he had on HBO Canada? Call Me Fitz. That was, that was pure entertainment. It was fun. Yeah. I liked that. So that starts tonight. I believe it's at 8 o'clock. But yeah, uh, oh wait, it says 8. Eastern, so that would make it 7 o'clock. Just check your PVR. Uh, it is coming up to 1.30 on 680 CGOB. That means it's time for Global News. Is it Thursday afternoon already? It is Thursday. I wasn't appreciating the long weekend on Tuesday morning. Uh-huh. I'm appreciating it a little bit more now. Now it feels like the benefits are starting to sink in. It was nice to have the three and a half days off mm-hmm. over the weekend, but now I think it's even better having the four-day work week this week. The four-day work week is always nice. It is a, a nice it bonus. it just feels like Wednesday, and then you go, oh, wait a second. It's Thursday. Very nice, very nice. Uh, Brett McGarry, Greg Mackling with you until 4 o'clock, and then we welcome in our good friends Julie Buckingham and Richard Cluche, at least on the radio. We uh, act as though we're, we're good friends. Uh, by the way, thank you to, uh, we had a listener call in and said, boys, love actually is actually on Netflix Canada. Yeah, and I had the I have the app loaded open in my phone and it just when you first pull up Love Actually it gives you all the thumbnail results and the thumbnails just weren't loading. So I thought it meant it wasn't there. Val says no, it's there and sure enough when I check my phone again it was sitting there. So uh, if you want to watch it on Netflix, you can do that or you can also if you don't, for example, have Netflix and not everybody does, you can still rent it on demand Shaw on demand, for example, has it. You can rent it in standard def for three ninety nine. Although, why well, I don't know why you'd want. To I do that. don't know why they standard def. Why they separate the two and four or four ninety nine for HD. So there you go. Fantastic. We're going to shift gears uh, dramatically, uh, depending on uh, your point of view. Uh, climate change has uh, man made. Is or isn't man-made, but I don't think we can deny that climate is changing, and that's having a detrimental effect to transportation networks in northern Manitoba. Amongst other issues around the world, we're going to localize it based on the fact 
that the ice road season that is so critical to serving northern communities has shrunk dramatically over the last two decades. Dr. Barry Prentice joins us now to to talk about this. And Dr. Prentice, always great to have some time with you. I know there was a presentation at the Vision Quest uh, last week about this very fact. How dramatically has the ice road season changed in Manitoba over the last couple of decades? Well, you know, it's really interesting. If you look at the sort of the dates when they open and close, it was about uh, double the length if you go back 20 years. And it's been slowly, progressively getting shorter and shorter. But what I hear talking to people in the ice roads is that at times it isn't just a matter of when they open and close. It's like if you get three days of warm weather in the middle of it and you get one uh, place where all of a sudden it's impassable, then the whole road, of course, is impassable. So, you know, we've had periods of of nice mild winters or weather in the wintertime now, but that isn't necessarily good for the people on the ice roads. So what does the ice road network allow? And and talk about where it's located and the the number of people that it it serves. Well, we know about it, of course, in Manitoba, and it's big. It's uh, 2,200 kilometres. So if you were to take those ice roads and stitch them all together into one road, it would go from Winnipeg to Vancouver and, and somewhere back. So it's a lot of uh, of uh, road that's created, and of course these are just uh, you know uh, areas across land and and over lakes and rivers where uh, the trucks are able to haul once the the snow is deep enough and plowed enough. One of the things that came out in the, in the lecture which in, was interesting is uh, uh, Judy Classen, who's you know lives in this area and drives these ice roads, said that you know some years there's not enough snow, but we're getting more growth, so you have small trees growing up and of course, it's really hard on your tires when you're when you're going over, you know, punctured tires. So, you know, things that we don't necessarily think about directly because we, we more or less think about ice just melting, but it's, it's bigger than that. Dr. Prentice, how long is ice road season typically? <laughs> That's a, always a, a, a question for everybody, but it starts uh, sometime in January and usually it ends up uh, sometime in March. But it could be starting at the end of January as opposed to the 1st of January these days, and it, and it could end up earlier, and, and it can have breaks in between. The other thing that's happening is that the uh, the government has, you know, for safety reasons, required the trucks to go slower than they used to go, substantially slower, and also requires more spacing between the trucks. So again, that just means that you don't get as much volume of material in. So you might be wondering, why are we talking about this when it's 21 degrees outside? Uh, summer <laughs> seems to be on the doorstep, although it's taking its uh, sweet time. The idea of uh, not only the economic impact of the goods being moved to the north, but also who needs those goods and what type of goods uh, are accessible, not only in terms of well-being, but also genuine health. There's an issue here as well for people in northern Manitoba serviced by these roads, right, Dr. Prentice? Well, absolutely. In fact, you know, we have several problems in the north, uh, one of which is high food prices. It's two and a half to three times what we pay for food. But even just clean equipment, Javax or something else, everything is more expensive. Uh, housing is in terrible shape and overcrowded. Uh, so again, the ice roads are really important to get any of these building materials in, as well as fuel. We've had some periods now when you know communities have run out of fuel. You know before the ice roads can come in. So then, if you're flying in fuel, that adds a lot to the cost. And in some cases, you just can't bring things in by little airplanes that you can bring in by road because of their size and shape. And 
if we look into the future, you know, and, I, and this is really what we're coming to, is the climate change is progressing. If we've already lost half of the usefulness of the rice roads in the last 20 years, are we going to lose another half in the next 20 years, or is it going to even go faster? And and then what? You know, we, we certainly can't afford to build all-weather roads everywhere in northern Manitoba. That was proven, I, I believe, by the uh, previous government who tried to build this network on the east side of Lake Winnipeg at horrendous cost. It took a long time and they didn't accomplish very much. Out of some 852 kilometers, I think they built about 90 or 100. And that was in a six-year period. So I don't think permanent roads is a solution. So what is the solution here, uh, Dr. Prentice? You and I have been talking about this for seven years and you've been working so hard to have Manitobans, Canadians, North Americans think long and hard about an alternate transportation uh, system. And that alternate transportation is cargo airships. And we are seeing more and more acceptance of this idea all the time. Uh, Part of it, I think, also has to do with the fact people are now looking at pricing carbon. And we're going to start seeing that in this province soon. Well, airships are very good. They don't burn a lot of fuel. And in fact, they could be use fuels that are low in carbon, so they can even be cleaner for that matter. So the, the, the near carbon side is a positive. But more important than that is, what is the other alternative? You know, as I say, we can't afford to build roads. We can't use little airplanes. Uh, we've tried everything else. But the one thing that hasn't ever been tried is airships. And we're saying, you know, it's time to put these things to a test. What is an airship, Dr. Prentice? Oh, <laughs> well, an airship, most people would think about a Goodyear blimp. You know, that would be the their idea of an airship. It's a essentially a lighter-than-air vehicle that's powered and, you know, takes you where you want to go. Unfortunately, when I, when I talk about a Goodyear blimp, it's a misrepresentation because most people see these things as, you know, doddering along in the sky and, you know, well, they're a floating billboard. They don't have to go anywhere. An actual airship will go at least 80 miles an hour is quite, or 145 kilometers an hour is quite possible. And if you look back into our past when the, the giant Zeppelins were available, uh, the biggest ones would carry 70 tons. So you can make a very big airship, and they were flying across the ocean. So it's, it's not something we haven't done. It's just a matter of, of picking up the pieces and redoing that and doing it better. How would how, or how do uh, airships differ from those Zeppelins? Well, uh, Zeppelins are an airship. It, it really comes down to a case of structure. Uh, the blimps have no frame or structure whatsoever. They're just an inflated uh, gas bag. Uh, a Zeppelin or, or a proper airship has a frame. And that's really important for us in, in Canada because we've done research already at our hangar that when we were, before it had its, uh, its demise in the storm, uh, we did cold weather research on this. And we found that the changes in the temperature has such an impact on the shape of the airship in the cold weather, if it's just an inflatable, we don't think that design is even practical for Canada. It's just too hard to manage. For example, you know, if you have a temperature which is at near zero and it goes down to 20 below at night, well, the air should be sagging and bagging and you'd have to put gas in to keep it its shape. But then when it warmed up again, you'd have to let the gas go because now it's going to burst. So it's just too hard to manage the a blimp-type airship. Uh, a rigid airship, one with a structure like a Zeppelin, the gas cells can go 
go bigger or smaller, whatever, it doesn't affect the shape. And I think that's the way we have to go here. Of course, a lot of people will think of the Hindenburg disaster in New Jersey when they Mm -hmm. think of an airship. And I mean, that's obviously a very vivid uh, remembrance, whether you were alive or not when it happened. You've certainly seen the footage or seen the movie that depicts the the tragedy. What kind of gas did the Hindenburg use? And is it different from what an airship might use today? Well, the Hindenburg used hydrogen. And, uh, you know, we... These days, actually, uh, the only thing you can use is helium because there's uh, a requirement in the air regulations that you're not allowed to use hydrogen. But a lot of people misunderstand uh, the the role of hydrogen in that accident. Uh, it's not clear that hydrogen caused the accident. And you have to remember that if they've had airships for 40 years previous. There's not a single instance of an accident like the Hindenburg. So although we all remember that one because it was caught on film and it's been broadcast over and over, it isn't a true representation of the technology or the danger. Uh, I'd also point out that out of 100 people on the Hindenburg, something like 70 of them walked away, whereas there have been air crashes even uh, after that where 30 or 40 people were killed every time and we still flew airplanes. So I don't think it's the risk or the issue of of the uh, the hydrogen that's holding this back, it's more a matter of where is the economics in the markets. Because after the Second World War, we've suddenly got jet airplanes and everybody loved them. I mean, we, we, they took the ocean landers off the seas and the transcontinental railways away and, and all the piston-driven airplanes. And it was just, it was the jet age. So there was no real market for passenger airships. What we're talking about today is different. We're talking about a cargo vehicle. And we're talking about carrying large loads and and taking it to places that don't have a lot of infrastructure. And it's a very different use. And, and of course, the other thing I suppose is worth saying, uh, jet airplanes are extremely polluting. Uh, The amount of carbon that comes out of a jet airplane is astounding. And uh, as the carbon taxes start to apply, I think we're going to start looking a little harder at at, uh, flying jet airplanes for cargo. Dr. Prentice, would it be akin to not using cargo ships and ocean liners based on what happened to the Titanic, the way we have <laughs> judged, uh, the, you know, airships based on the tragedy of the Hindenburg? I think there's, there's a lot of truth in that. And the other thing we have to look at is that was 80 years ago. You know, the, the, the cutting-edge automobile was a Model A Ford. And, <laughs> you know, if you think about a Model A Ford versus, you know, what we have now, literally uh, autonomous cars, I mean, there's such a huge leap in technology, and none of that's been applied to airships. Can you can you stick around for a couple of minutes, Doctor Prentice? We're going to update weather. Uh, We'll put you on pause slash hold here, and then we'll come back and conclude our conversation. Doctor Barry Prentice, professor at the IH Asper School of Business in Department of Supply Chain Management at the University of Manitoba. Surely you'd be worried that you're going to smash off that into the ground. Oh my god. Wow. Oh my god, he's actually just broken it. Yeah, he's just That is audio from a crash of the airship called the Fl- well, it's nicknamed. It's not named. <laughs> its nickname is the Flying Bum. It's a the Airlander 10 and not very dramatic at all. 
No. Right? Kind of like, oh, my goodness, uh, I think he's going to crash. Um, well, that can be very good. <laughs> <laughs> no explosions, right? No. Just, uh, you know, a very hard landing. And we're talking about this uh, and visiting with our good friend, Dr. Barry Prentice, IH Asper School of Vis- uh, Business. He's a professor there in the Department of Supply Chain Management. That's at the University of Manitoba and Dr. Prentice, Dr. Prentice, the flying bum uh, crashing into the ground uh, doesn't make for very good radio, nor did it really make for very good television. No, it's like watching fireworks on radio. <laughs> exactly. I, the, uh, the this interesting. The Airlander Ten that was their second flight. Uh, that was a year ago. It's now uh, been repaired and it's back out of the hangar. They've had a three-hour flight, so they're they're continuing on with their research program. But it's uh, significant in that this is the very first of what I would call the large airships returning to the skies. Uh, this airship would carry about 10 tons. So uh, it is the first out to shoot, but it's not the only one. There's, there's actual activity going on all over the world uh, from Russia, France, Germany, uh, Brazil, for that matter, has an airship they're flying, uh, Argentina, China, U.S., of course, and some work in Canada. So... Uh, there's a lot of places that are getting interested, and, and some more than other. France is an interesting one. They have a an actual program. They're, they've got 150 million euros earmarked for the development of airships, and there's about four or five companies there that are doing things. So I think this is a technology that will sneak up on everybody. You know, All of a sudden we'll say, oh, wait, where did this all come from? And it's a, it's a bit like the electric car or the wind turbine. It's just uh, very slowly moving forward, and all of a sudden it will be upon us. Dr. Prentice, when you say it carries 10 tons, I'm just trying to think of a comparison. Man, maybe why don't we just use a semi-truck? Do you know what a, what an average semi-truck would carry in terms of tons? Yeah, the, in Canada, about 25 tons is a, a semi-truck, but you have to remember that's if you have a, a dense cargo. A lot of times when you try to fill up a truck, you have to close the doors before you get the full weight, and often it's only maybe 15 tons, so... An airship will carry the full weight. Uh, dimensions aren't a problem because they're so big. But nonetheless, it's about a half a truckload. And although that doesn't sound like much, uh, currently we're serving these remote communities with airplanes that maybe carry one ton, and a big one would be five tons. So, uh, And there's also the issue, of course, of an airplane. You can only put in an airplane what you can get through the door. So anything that's awkward or long has a real problem. And uh, we need... To have a solution, as I, I like to say, you know, the end's in sight for ice roads, and we have to start preparing now. Because even if we had the funds to, or the airlander had the funds to go immediately into production, it would probably be three years or four years before they actually had an airship certified and able to be commercially used. We're visiting with Dr. Barry Prentice, University of Manitoba. We're discussing the future of hauling big things. We're talking about everything from food shipments to vehicles and everything in between to northern and remote communities in Manitoba. Airships are something that Dr. Prentice has been researching, uh, not only out of a book and on a computer, but actually has built several airships. The hangar that those airships were contained in was destroyed in a windstorm up near St. Andrews last year. So what's next for your program, Dr. Prentice? Well, we didn't. We couldn't get insurance on our building or airship, so that's been a complete loss, and, and we ha- we can't replace it. But what we have been doing is working on the components. So we've been actually uh, uh, spending uh, our efforts and time in developing the gas cells for the rigid airship. 
Uh, a lot of the gas cells which have been produced are fairly leaky, so we've uh, developed some new technology that uh, contains the gas better and also designed them for airships uh, to remind people the, the last rigid airship was the Hindenburg. That was 80 years ago, and the gas cells they used at that time, they, they were pasting cow's stomachs onto linen sheets. So that was a, it worked, but it didn't last very long, and of course, so we're not going to do that again. So there's a need for new gas cell technology, and that's what we're specializing in now. And we've been meeting with the companies uh, in Europe and also Brazil and, and others that are very interested in the use of these gas cells. So that's where we see focusing our efforts now. Dr. Barry E. Prentice, thank you so much for your time talking about airships with Dr. Prentice. He is a professor at the IH Asper School of Business, Department of Supply Chain Management at the University of Manitoba. 2.06 on this Thursday afternoon, heading towards a, well, I guess abbreviated work week. We're in the middle of that and heading towards another weekend. The forecast is dicey at best. Keep it locked here. We'll give you the information, whether it's good or bad, traffic, weather, sports, news, entertainment, you name it, we've got it. Julie Buckingham, Richard Cluche coming up at 4 o'clock and the news. I'm Greg, he's Brett, and we visited with this young woman via telephone, I think it was about, what, about six, seven weeks ago? April 20th. April 20th, okay, so five weeks on the release of True North, the Canadian songbook, or sixth studio album, and, uh, well, she's in Winnipeg, so we thought... Eleanor McCain, come and see us. Come say hi. It's lovely to meet you in person. Nice to meet you, too, and thanks for uh, having me back and here with um, the amazing producer on the album, too, Don Brightup. Well, so no kidding. Uh, this, here is, together. this is a nice surprise, right, Brett? Yeah, we were, <laughs> because uh, I, I know that we, we really enjoyed talking to you over the phone, and we kind of felt like we didn't have enough time, and then Sarah says, do you want to talk to her in studio? And we said, sometimes our job's really easy. It's just, <laughs> yes, <laughs> we had to work really hard to get you to come back. So, uh, And Don was also a nice surprise. So I guess, why don't we start with you, Don, very quickly. Your sure. involvement in the, the CD, you're the, the producer of this? I am the music producer and also the piano player uh, for most of it and the arranger for about a third of it. Well, we should listen to at least one of those arrangements. Uh Brian Adams song that just about everyone listening ought to know, and if they don't, they should run to YouTube and look it up. Uh, this was produced and performed uh, with the help of the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra. Amazing interpretation of a classic Canadian rock and roll song. Mm -hmm. Eleanor, uh, talk about how this project came together and, and, and why you did it. Oh, well, it's actually been three years in the making. Uh, the concept of it started about three years ago. Um, I was just finishing up another album called Runaway, which was a similar concept in that it was um, uh, classic contemporary pop songs reimagined for orchestra. And the idea, I was thinking about new shows for symphonies that I was wanted to develop, and the idea of Canadian music came up, and which immediately just captured my imagination, and I thought how incredible that would be to showcase our Canadian songbook, and to reimagine it for orchestra, and also really showcase Canadian orchestras. Um, and one of the things that I 
thought about instantly was how do you, because I've been working with several um, orchestras around the country, how do you showcase just one if you're going to be celebrating Canadian music and celebrating it in Canada's 150? And so then I had this crazy idea, wouldn't it be amazing to record with orchestras across the country? Um, and then also feature the work of arrangers from across the country too. So I thought about it. I had a, I instantly came up with a, a playlist that I lived with for about a year as the logistics of the whole project kind of plagued my mind thinking, how am I going to do this? And, uh, but what really prevailed was just my love of this country, the love of the music, wanting to showcase Canadian orchestras and musicians. And, and so I ended up having a chat with Dawn about a year later in early in January, 2015 and shared the idea with you and (laughs) kind of, that's what kind of kickstarted it. eh? A, (laughs) gotta get that (laughs) in there too. So how did how did Eleanor convince you to get involved, Don? Well, I, actually, I knew of Eleanor's work and previous recordings, and we had a lot of uh, friends and colleagues in common already. And uh, she came down to Los Angeles, actually, and had this meeting with me and laid the whole thing out for me. And I thought, well, that sounds like there's going to be a lot of moving parts and it might take a couple of years to finish, which turned out to be true. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we uh, delivered it in time for it to be released this spring and uh, to have its timely uh, moment in the spotlight for the uh, Canada's birthday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the show is uh, tomorrow, Saturday, and Sunday. Uh, Don, are you going to be involved? Are you going to be playing? I will be playing piano, yes. So what is the, I guess maybe just give try to give us a snapshot of what is the, what's it like putting a, a CD together where you're recording music, where it's, I would imagine far more structured, whereas on stage it's more organic, I guess. I don't, I'm not a musician, so I, I can't even imagine what the difference would be. Well, I think that uh, putting it down in the studio, um, you have to be very careful and make sure that every nuance is what you want to end up with. Now, when you're doing it on stage and you have a score that involves, say, 60 people, um, everyone kind of has to stick to the plan. So it's it's not like there's um, any possibility of stretching the forms of the songs and and that kind of thing. Uh, but it sure is different being in one space with vocals, rhythm section, and the full orchestra sounding at the same time. Yeah, it's an there's awesome no feeling. replacing that. Eleanor, when you're recording in studio, putting a CD together, do you ever find yourself kind of stopping mid? Mid sentence as your or mid verse, I guess, thinking, no, I didn't like that. I'm going to redo it, and then to the point where you you get almost stuck, like n- not liking anything that you're doing. Um, I think usually you know in advance before you get into a studio if a song's going to work or not, and that's kind of when Don and I got together um, early in the project. We went through my initial list of 27 songs, and it's re- subtracted from that, and then added a few more because some of your your suggestions. I think you know when you in the early stages whether it's going to work. So and you you eventually then when it goes to the arrangers, you know there were there are things that we kind of said yeah this is working yeah that's not working or you know, we kind of get a sense pretty early on before you go into the studio. But you know certainly there are things once you're in the studio. I think you know that's the song you want to do. But you might try, we've tried different things with certain songs and and so we played around with different ideas. But generally we move forward with them. And if I can just interject. You may not even know this, but you don't overthink like some artists mm. do. I mean, people sometimes get out there and the red light's on and 
they can't get out of their own heads and they go down the rabbit hole and they do 30 takes and can't decide which is good. Uh, Eleanor is a lot more sort of free-flowing and trusting of the process, I would say, than a lot of people. Well, well, we yeah. have great musicians. The guys that are on the band, Don's one of them, he plays the piano, and then the other guys in the album, uh, Pat Gilbride on bass and Mark Kelso on drums and Justin Abbott on guitar. You guys are amazing musicians. So sometimes we'd go in and it'd be like one take. You know, they're just exceptional musicians. So you kind of, you know, except for it with the exception of a few nuances here and there, we kind of all knew the direction we were going in. Yeah. And I guess the reason why I brought it up is even though I can't relate from a musician, I know that, and Greg can probably attest to this as well, you know, when we record stuff or record shows off the air, there sometimes is a, an inclination to go, no, I didn't like that, and start over. But mm-hmm. we're in a live and live setting right now, so whether or not I like how I just said something I have, mm-hmm. it's out there. It's it's just got to keep going. So when you're performing yeah. live, are there what happens when you stumble? Oh, I had a good stumble there at the launch event, didn't I? <laughs> Like whether it's figuratively it or an actual physical stumble. <laughs> I have, oh, please don't put that in my head. Hopefully I don't actually fall yeah. on, on, Way to go, on Brad. stage. <laughs> I'm, I like to crush <laughs> dreams. <laughs> Video at 11. <laughs> but we did actually, I had a, it was actually the first time it ever happened where I started a song because I'd just given some remarks and I put my pages down on the piano. And I wasn't really paying attention. Oh, gosh, what bar, what bar are they in? And then I totally lost. And I said, we're starting that song again. So Yeah, she pulled an Adele. I did. <laughs> she shut it down and started again. Yeah, yeah. And Adele got a lot of credit for doing that, right? Yeah. And saying, no, no, you know what? This is star- started off on the wrong foot. We yeah. need to rejig this thing and it's press restart. It's such a great song, too. I was like, no, we're not. We're, we're making this one. And, and it, it was a good decision. It was fun. Yeah. And everybody was relaxed. And we had a good time with it. But there are times, though, when like doing vocals, you know, it's... I might do that with a vocal, like I'll, I'll listen to it and listen back and, and, and go, you know, it's not quite where I want it to be and I'll go and do it again. So that's, you know, but that's a nice thing about the recording process is you can do that. But given the way we, we, this process unfolded, it started with us workshopping, then we get the arrangements, you work, you know, kind of listen to them and work with them there, got to work them again in the studio, sing them with the orchestra. There were so many different stages, but by the time we got to the vocals and doing all that, we kind of had really flushed out a lot of the ideas. And mm-hmm. We had so drained was, the swamp by we that did. point. <laughs> Don lives in the United States, and yes. so that has become part of the vernacular down there. Uh, you know, I've marveled probably since I was nine years old when ELO came out with their first album where they worked with the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra. Mm-hmm. I was jealous because they didn't work with the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra. And then Tom Cochran did the same thing, did symphony sessions, and then, you know, got to see Chantal Kreviazic mm-hmm. about six, seven years ago perform with the WSO. And these symphonies, and, you know, Metallica performed with the SFO and this idea of combining these big performances with popular music, I think has been around obviously for at least the 40 years that I just covered there and maybe even longer. I think it's such an incredible way to expose rubes like Brett and I uh, (laughs) to things like symphonic music. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that is one of the the magical things about it. It's it's funny. I think uh, Brigham Phillips, who's one of our rangers, said uh, had a really nice way of framing it in that you know, he does, as you guys all do, with your arranging, arrange for, you know, small ensembles. But when you have this opportunity to 
um, work with 60 professional musicians in different palettes, different colors, it creates this beautiful, lush landscape of sound. And it, it, it really gives a fresh new take and interpretation of some classic songs that we love. It does bring in a new audience, too, sometimes. That's that's um, sort of a, a side benefit. But it's, um, it's just a, an incredible sound to work with an orchestra, to perform with an orchestra, to be lost in that sound, wouldn't you say? I would. Yeah. And it, from the arranging standpoint, it's always fun to have... Just more crayons in the box. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> your, your love for music, though, started more with popular music. Is that fair to say, Don? Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I'm just a rock and roll kid like anybody else. Uh, but uh, my mother was in, very involved in classical music. She was the choir director and was a soprano soloist. And then my dad was a, a real jazz freak. So I was getting different styles sort of floating in from an early age. And so none of that music ever sounded weird to me. I just thought this is just another style. So was combining the two uh, sort of a natural, were you the natural go-to guy on a project like this? Yeah, I may not be the only one, but I certainly, um, I had have one foot in, in pop rock soul world and then the other in sort of theater, jazz, classical. Yeah, that was definitely say. one of the reasons when I was it was actually an interesting story how we got connected. We have a personal connection. So he mentioned his mom and uh, my mom. The, the two of them went to university together and are best friends still to this day. So it's kind of nice. But we'd never really had the opportunity to work together. Because you grew up in the boonies. I did. That's why. <laughs> East Coaster and Don yeah. grew up in, in Ontario. But, uh, yeah. Where in the East Coast? In New Brunswick. Okay. Yeah. And you can, that's, that's the boonies for, uh... well, not all of New Brunswick is the boonies, but your little I town. I in a very small Florence village. Florence yeah, Florence 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 Florence. Yeah. It was a village of 800 people. I loved oh. it. Yeah. Oh, quite... sounds fantastic. I loved it, actually. actually. Yeah. I did. I actually really loved it. We need to pause our conversation for a moment. The show is True North, the Canadian songbook. It's happening tomorrow night, Saturday night, Sunday afternoon at the Centennial Concert Hall with Eleanor McCain, as well as Don Bright Up. He produced the album, which is now available for purchase as well. And we will continue our chat after your forecast up next. was 2004 when Neil Young could not make it to the Juno Awards and mm. Katie Lang stepped in and capably did Helpless. It's actually has turned into one of my absolutely favorite live performances ever. And I do not count myself as a Katie Lang fan until she did that. Uh, Eleanor McCain uh, joining us in studio. That is her voice along with our new friend Dong Bright Up. He is uh, the producer of the album that is celebrating Canada, and we're going to celebrate it at the Centennial Concert Hall this weekend, Brett. True North, the Canadian songbook, shows tomorrow night, Saturday and Sunday. And this is not just a live performance with the orchestra, but it's also a double album. And there's an accompanying uh, book. So, Eleanor, which, what do you want to talk about first, the CD or the book? <laughs> well, they're actually uh, they're, they're sort of packaged together. It was um, part of the concept that... Um, when I was listening to the playlist in the in the early days, the thing that was going through my head a lot was the Canadian landscape. 
And so this idea um, to create a book kind of came up to marry all of these these things of, of, that I love about Canada together. And so Tony Hauser, who is a renowned portrait photographer, um, ended up curating the book. He researched all the photographers across Canada, and there are 22 photographers featured and 32 landscape photographs that, that are in the book. And the book ended up being developed into some other concepts where we have the song lyrics, we have uh, songwriter commentary, uh, we have behind-the-scenes photographs of all the recording sessions, and then Tony himself took some portraits um, uh, with me, I guess, in them. <laughs> and we're featuring um, Canadian uh, fashion designers in those, and we ch- chose eight lo- locations across the country. So it's 220 pages, and uh, it celebrates the music, and uh, the albums are included with the book. And Don, what uh, we she mentioned the word playlist in terms of a playlist. What can people expect when they go to see the show tomorrow night, Saturday or Sunday afternoon? Well, you're going to hear um, a, a short list of um, iconic Canadian songwriters, including, of course, uh, locally relevant ones like Neil Young and uh, the Guess Who. Um, you probably have the set list in your head more I than I do because it's been evolving so much lately. <laughs> well, there's Leonard Cohen, Leonard Hallelujah, Cohen. Um, Joni Mitchell, A Case of You, um, Sarah McLaughlin's Angel, Run to You by Brian Adams, and some uh, East Coast favorites like uh, We Rise Again and Ordinary Day by Great Big Sea. Yeah, we've got uh, quite a lineup. It's a nice, it's a nice uh, flow and and uh, representation of some some of our iconic Canadian songs. I'll even throw in Gordon Lightfoot and Anne yes. Murray as yes. well. So yeah. some favorites for all generations, to be sure. Uh, this uh, sounds like a fantastic show. Uh, three programs uh, for you to enjoy over the weekend at Centennial Concert Hall. Thanks so much for doing this, Eleanor. And New Brunswick, McCain, it has to be asked. I'm getting it on text message. <laughs> How are you? Yes, people want to know, are you related to the potato people? I am related the French to the fry potato people. people. I am. <laughs> the potato people. Attack of the potato people. It's one of my favorite old uh, 60s movies. Can you send that to me on DVD, Don? I want to watch that one. Thanks, Don. It was great to meet you. And, and Eleanor, nice to us. finally meet you in nice person. Nice to meet you too. We're looking forward to performing with the Winnipeg Symphony. Eleanor McCain, True North, the Canadian Songbook. It is a show happening tomorrow, Saturday, Sunday at the Centennial Concert Hall. You can get more information at wso.ca. Also, you can buy it on album, with which it was produced by Emmy Award-winning composer Don Brightup. And he's going to be playing piano as well at the show. So much to say, so little time. We're out of time. The news is next. I'm Greg. He's Brett. She's Carolyn. Carolyn Clausen is here. Connexus Counseling. ConnexusCounseling.ca. That's right. She's a therapist, and she joins us every Thursday afternoon at 2.30. So not only is it typically good news when you're here, it's good news because it means it's Thursday afternoon. <laughs> it's a double uh, bouquet of, of, of happiness when Tomorrow's you join us. Tomorrow's Friday, and That's it was a right. short week, right? So we exactly. get there even quicker. Yep. See? We must be thinking the right way. Yes, because when Carolyn justifies the way we are thinking, I, I imagine that we're doing things more or less right. Well, it is not what you wanted to talk to Carolyn about. You want her to justify your way of thinking. I do not want. <laughs> is that is is that the way you're viewing this? I'm just being an instigator. You are. Well, often and you're Brett good at sends it. the email, and this time you did. Like Greg, I want to talk about this. <laughs> uh, you may have been uh, born witness. Would that would that be the correct terminology? Was it Thursday or Friday last week? It might have been after. Carolyn left last Thursday.
Uh, Does that sound about right? Because otherwise we would have spoken with Carolyn about it last Thursday, so it had to have been sometimes, and I wasn't even here Friday, so it must have been Thursday afternoon around 3 o'clock. I thought it was, uh, no, it was because we brought in... Oh, yeah, I think you might be right. I think it had to <laughs> been between three and four on Thursday. Anyway, regardless, Kevin Pollar of the uh, Toronto Blue Jays suspended by the ball club two games for using a homophobic slur. And he he issued what I thought was an excellent apology. It was quite heartfelt, it seemed like. He took ownership of what he said. Mm-hmm. But I took a little bit of, uh, took him to task uh, I couldn't do so in person because he was in Atlanta and we were here. But I questioned somewhat the idea of him um, kind of sloughing off in his last sentence the idea that, that this wasn't really who I am. I've apologized personally to Jason Mott, but also need to apologize to the Braves organization and their fans, and most importantly to the LGBTQ community for the lack of respect I displayed last night. This is not who I am, and will use this as an opportunity to better myself. And I just said, you know, we've seen these apologies from people before, and they like to throw in that, that this is not who I am, this is not who I represent. But this, is, this word is clearly part of Kevin Pillar's vocabulary. It came out of his mouth. That's right. And so Brett suggested that maybe I was being a little self-righteous by judging him. I had at least one interaction with a listener that went back and forth for several emails who suggested I was on my high horse, and I wanted to qualify the fact that I think based on what I know about Kevin Pillar, I've never met the man, but based on what I've seen in interviews and how he conducts himself normally— I, he seems like one of the good guys in baseball, but I didn't like the idea that you're apologizing for something that you said and you modified the ownership of it. Hmm. Well, we, when you were asking this to me and you emailed me about it, it's actually something that I work with in my job a lot is that people often come and say, can you help me stop doing something? Because I do it, but I don't want to do it. And when I try to not do it, I do it anyways. So can you help me figure this out? Why am I doing something that isn't really me is what they would say. And so um, we in therapy use this theory called internal family systems by this guy named Dr. Richard Schwartz. Um, He's from the States and I really like his work. And when I use it with clients, it just fits. And what he would say is it's kind of like picture an orchestra where you have a conductor and the conductor has, you know, 50 or 60 instruments in front of him and the conductor helps the orchestra play beautiful music. But what happens when the trumpets all of a sudden say, we're going to play now whether you want us to or not. We're going to play what we want, when we want, and we're not going to listen to you. And what he would say is that we all have a centered self, a part of us that is who we truly at our core are. We have our sense of values, what's important to us, who we love. It's clear, it's courageous, it's connected. That part is something beautiful inside of us. And then we have these parts that as, and it's like the self is the conductor, and these parts are like the instruments of an orchestra. And what you would like is for the conductor, the self, to be able to say, okay, violins, you come in now, and now you take a break. That the, the conductor is the one that that sets the music of the orchestra. But that every once in a while, you get, and maybe for some of us who are parents or some of us who are raising children, we realize how often we can kind of get hijacked where one section of the orchestra suddenly takes over 
a part that's extra scared or extra angry, and it starts to behave in a way that doesn't actually represent the self in a true way. And so it is you, but it's not acting in harmony with how you would like to be. Yeah, and the reason that I, last week I, I, and I did confirm, by the way, it was one forty-five. we talked about it with Keith and Matt, and then we, Greg and I, talked about it after Richard and Julie left the room. We sort of got into it very briefly on the subject. So I disagreed with Greg's mm-hmm. assessment that uh, it, he's sort of sloughing off ownership of it because if he says that's not who I am, I tend to agree with him. I mean, he, I think he, he said it, but he immediately tried to make up for it, tried to atone for his sins, apologized after, and then apologized again and very clearly tried to fall on his sword for the mistake that he made. And the reason I think of that is, and I can elaborate on this, but I don't want to elaborate on it a little bit more. But first, what would what would you say if I say, is it correct to state that we are we all have darkness inside of us? Well, we all have parts of us that react strongly when we're provoked, when we're upset, when we're especially sad, and that those parts are part of who we are, but they kind of take over. And it's kind of like the pilot is flying the plane, and then all of a sudden a hijacker takes over and takes the plane, and everybody goes where that hijacker is taking the plane. And that hijacker is truly flying the plane, but they're not the, actually the best person to fly the plane. What you want is you want the pilot black back in the cockpit, right? And I think some we all know that experience of being taken over. Um, and recognizing that we are not our best selves at that point. And um, that's a part of that flight, fright, free system that our brain has, where when we're under threat, we lose control of the best parts of who we are and the parts that look after emergencies take over and look after taking care of the immediate threat without regard to how much danger it might be causing to ourselves or others in the big picture. So we wanted to tie this to your blog, 10 Rules of Engagement, and the part that jumped out at me, and this, you know, a lot of times... Healthy couples Mm -hmm. will have rules for arguments Mm -hmm. and rules for disagreements and for how they communicate in times of disagreement. And I think that's what you're talking about quite a bit in terms of of this blog. Yes. And But one thing jumped out at me. And did it not print off that section? Oh, yeah. Here it is right here. Lines. And each word here represents its (laughs) Its own own sentence. sentence. (laughs) So this is pretty intense stuff. Lines we will not cross. And I suggested to Brett, and I don't know if it was on air or off air, there are lots of words that I use in my private life that I use on the other side of that door Mm. that I will not use in here. And there are words that I know that if I ever used them in an argument with Jackie, uh, there might not be any turning back, but they are part of my vocabulary and they are words that I have used in the past and I have to be mindful of them. But there are other words that I never use, and if they came out in an argument and I used them, I would have to have a long look in the mirror and realize that I'm maybe not who I think I am in terms of some of those words. Even though I know them, I don't make a habit of using them. And so I guess that's a long way around of asking you is if I'm in an argument and I pull out some of these words that I try not to use most of the time, I own those words. And they are a part of who I am, yes or no? They are a part of who you are, but they're not the essence of who you are. And so I would agree with that. Often when people are coming to therapy, what they want to say is, I see myself representing myself in ways that I that don't truly represent me. And I want to figure out how to get into my authenticity and be the person that I really am and not 
talked um, in a way that's unfair or, you know, punch below the belt in a way that's not fair in an argument. Help me figure out how to do this because I don't like how I represent myself well. And that's where often the work is, is how do we get mindful? How do we figure out how to remove the barriers or the triggers that have a person act out of who they really want to be? And I think the fact that you don't use those words and that you try very hard not to use those words because it's important to you not to use the words, that tells me who you truly are, Greg. And I think the challenge for us all is to figure out what do, how do we really want to be and then how do we figure out how to align our behavior to be consistent with that. When and, and I think one of the reasons why I wrote this blog is that husband and I have figured out these rules and we figured them out when we're calm and relaxed so that when we're upset, we don't have to think, is this a good word to use or not? We just already know that's off. The, we don't have to make a decision at that point because the decision has already been made. Do you ever break the rules of engagement? Uh, there's some that we, we have not crossed. Um, and there's other moments. Part of the rules of engagement is when you, when you, when you don't represent yourself well, you figure out how to come back and, and own it and apologize, which is a little bit what the baseball player did, right? Pilar mm-hmm. went and he, he owned it. And so I think that's part of his rules of engagement is when you blow it, then you own it. And he, he gave a textbook apology. If somebody doesn't know what a good apology looks like, read what he wrote. Yeah, I mean, he says, this is not who I am and will use this as an opportunity to better myself. And I think that, uh, you know, when I think of who I am versus part of, as you said, a part of who I am, I think, uh, like, for me, I have a, a bad temper. It's I have a thermonuclear temper. Uh. I don't know if you remember, Greg, I, you, both of you might. You remember the Garbage Pail Kids? Yes. Well, you remember Cabbage Patch Kids? Yes. So there is the Garbage Pail Kids, and they were like this, it was just kind of this gross, gross out thing for kids. And, uh, they, you know, there were guys named like Bobby Booger. And there's one <laughs> character, his name is Adam Bomb. And he's pictured pushing the button, uh. the nuclear button, but it's his head that explodes. It's a nuclear bomb that's coming out of his head. That's what I feel like my temper is. I'm okay. like the anger emotion guy from the Disney movie Inside Out, you know, whose head erupts in flames. So that's one of the reasons why I tend to not be, try not to be too opinionated or I don't tend to get involved in a lot of discussions where opinions are being flung around because I know that there's a good chance I might get heated and snap. And when I really lose it, I'm kind of like Bruce uh, Bruce Banner, you know, please don't make me angry. You won't like it (laughs) when I'm angry because I can say things that are really mean, uh, nasty, cutting and just quite frankly awful okay but i don't think that's who i am because i try very hard to keep that at bay because i feel so bad when i do actually lose control like that well and what i'm hearing is how you even modify your life or modify the conversations you engage in the way you engage in them to make sure that your hand stays really far away from that nuclear button so that it doesn't get pushed because that's not who you want to be that's not who you truly are but you realize you have that potential inside of you. But part of your authenticity is to make sure that you don't impose that on other people to the best of your ability. I'm going to pause the conversation. It's uh, coming up to time to check your forecast on 680 CJOB. Greg Mackling, Brett McGarry, Carolyn Clausen with us on this Thursday afternoon as we head towards another weekend. It's not quite there, but you can certainly see it from here. We're talking about the rules of engagement. Husband and Carolyn have 10 rules of engagement as it pertain to their, what do we call it, arguing, their conflict resolution, yeah. somewhere in between? When we don't see eye to eye, right, our disagreements. And I would say that part of the, 
his and my style is not, I wouldn't say we have all out fights, but there's certainly times we don't see eye to eye. And, and I actually, it always kind of gives me the heebie jeebies when a couple tells me that they never disagree because then I wonder if they're actually engaged with each other and sort of have a vital relationship because part of being alive is disagreeing and having to figure it out. And that's part of what makes a relationship stronger is the actual figuring of it out. But is it, not human nature, though, to want to avoid the conflict, because if you're in a relationship, conflict can, you know, like if Greg and I have a conflict, it, it, it might go two minutes or five minutes and then it's over. Mm-hmm. But when you're in a relationship, conflict can go on for days. So I used to try really hard to avoid that. Well, and I think conflict between a couple when they're each other's safe place and secure haven when you are sort of a part of getting through life is that you're doing it together as a couple. It's really vulnerable to have conflict for sure. And so a lot of times people avoid it. Um, I guess me being a marriage therapist, I see what happens when people avoid it for too long. And so I can see that uh, short-term pain is definitely worth the long-term gain to say, if we have something, let's deal with it while it's small, because often the longer you let something go on, the bigger it gets. And I'd rather sort of nip it in the bud and deal with it when it first starts. We're guilty of that on all sorts of fronts, though, right? As human beings, uh, home maintenance, vehicle maintenance, sure. uh, you know, uh, work relationships where we let the little things go, we let them slide. And then there comes a time when you look back and you go, geez, this person's really getting on my nerves or I've got something that I've ignored uh, for far too long. And now it's on the verge if it hasn't already become a large problem, either on my roof or somewhere else in my yeah. home. Uh, now I'm forced to deal with it. And that typically when you have to deal with something uh, not on your own terms, uh, make it confrontational, even if it's with an inanimate object, like a leaking roof. But uh, you, I know I explode and I'm mad at myself as I am at the situation for letting it go so long and, and for having it be a situation that I now have zero choice but to deal with. Right. I think um, it's helpful to keep short accounts. You realize when you don't keep up relationship maintenance, when you don't keep up maintenance on anything, that's when things can deteriorate. And the longer things deteriorate, the bigger the job is when you actually do address it. And so um, I'm of the mind of I'd rather deal with it relatively quickly so that it doesn't multiply and it doesn't get away on us. Um, And so it often requires deliberate conversations because it is easier to let it slide. Sometimes you just want to watch a half hour sitcom before you go to bed rather than dig into something. And yet um, I feel like my relationships are richer when I deal with those right away and they can be something then that actually strengthens the relationship and makes um, the connection stronger because often when there's a little bit of scar tissue over something that you've repaired, you have something that's stronger in the end. How do you avoid causing further damage if you're trying to deal with a conflict because often you can try to say okay well we got to talk about this and then it can get worse because you're talking about it well and that's what the rules of engagement are very much designed to do is how does the conflict stay so that we can deal with this conflict resolve it and have it get better rather than um, have an a fight or an argument about whatever the conflict was. And often by the time people come in to see the marriage therapist, they don't even remember what the original argument was. What they do remember is the collateral damage of the low blows that they gave each other during the argument and how much that hurt. And you can't unring the bell. And so I think it's helpful to be mindful and to go in with a plan of what kind of behavior, who am I truly 
Um, and how do I truly see this other person? How important are they to me? And how can I represent myself well so that I can build this relationship? And if things start to get heated and I'm not sure I can represent myself well, how can I pull out before I create any collateral damage in the in the discussion or the argument? Well, so often the argument becomes about how you were arguing right. and not about the argument itself and how you've crossed lines and I'm not even going to talk to you now and this, that, and the other thing. And which brings us with a minute left back to our original <laughs> question and conversation. If I pull out a word, whatever that word might be, and it's something that uh, the other person finds incredibly disrespectful, is it disingenuous for me to say, you know, that that's not a part of who I am? I think some of it depends on your nomenclature, Greg. For you, you would say that is a part of who I am, but it's it, I'd like it to not be, and I wish it wasn't. Which is what I think Kevin Pillar is trying okay. to say. And I think a lot of it is this, that is not the, doesn't represent the best part of who I am. I want to be better with you. I want to do things differently and moving forward, I'm going to make different decisions and I'm going to be more mindful and I'm going to represent myself well. And I'm going to use this as an opportunity to let you know that you matter to me, that I want to make it better and that I will make it better. And I think when that comes from the core, from the heart, the center of a person, that the other person can really sense it and that that builds the relationship. You can read the blog at Karen, or pardon me, connexuscounseling.ca. It's called 10 Rules of Engagement. Carolyn Clausen is a therapist with Connexus Counseling. Once again, that website, connexuscounseling.ca. It is coming up to 3 o'clock on 680 CJOB. Thank you very much. Here we go now. The next guest, uh, yeah, mm-hmm is an acclaimed singer-songwriter, and his most recent CD right here is entitled Scream. Please welcome back to the Pro 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 program, Chris Cornell, everybody. Of course, the uh, tragic passing, the suicide of Chris Cornell last week. Today, we celebrate Tom Milroy's 65th birthday. What do the two have to do with one another? Well, Tom Milroy was in the building when this performance took place at, on David Letterman. When he went to New York City once, and we had Letterman tickets in the chilly Ed Sullivan Theater. He keeps it about 10 Celsius. And that was the musical guest. We saw Matthew Broderick and then Chris Cornell. Weird, eh? Yeah, it yeah. is It is kind of weird. Uh, anyway, happy 65th, Tom. Thank you. What? Yes, 65. 65. Wow. How'd that happen? Uh, you tell us. I don't know. Does yeah. he actually keep it at 10 Celsius? Yeah, it's very exa- cold. That's a bit of a, yeah. Okay, you're embellishing. Yeah. Thanks a lot, McGarry. You know, just play along for a bit. No. <laughs> I don't care that it's your birthday. You, are you still on the air at the station? <laughs> yes, still, I do. Do you still work here? <laughs> he sounded like the boss. Just ask him. I ran into him and I said, I'm back after I'm back after a few weeks away because I'm a hip ball. Oh, okay. Were, were you gone? <laughs> <laughs> Saturday mornings, am I right? Ten till noon. Ten till noon. Yes. And uh, it's uh, great to see you back. And congratulations. Do we congratulate you on the hip yeah. surgery? Yeah, I went fine. I'll be losing the cane very shortly. Terrific. But it goes hand in hand, turning 65 and having a cane, doesn't it? Yeah, maybe yeah. you might want to keep it. Yeah, maybe. Oh, we're not throwing it away. We're going to keep it in the house along with the rest of the accoutrement we yeah. bought. <laughs> don't, don't put it too far away. You might need it sooner than Got you imagine. Got a walker, a fold-up walker at home and some stuff for the bathroom that I won't go into now and uh, other stuff. <laughs> What's well, really, you get a grabber to you by a grabber. You can grab stuff without having to get up, you know? 
Oh, yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) You'll have to show me how to use that in about 15 years. Anyway, Tom, Brett and I have been so influenced over the years Mm -hmm. by uh, uh, Hal, yourself, uh, Richard Cloutier, and... uh, uh, Shadow and 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 Jeff, the, you know the legends in this building, and uh, you're a king of this business. You're a hall of famer. Uh, talk about your rapid, you know, descent <laughs> from the. No- <laughs> I tease, I tease. This monumental birthday, <laughs> rapid descent. <laughs> 65 it like yeah. it sneaks up on you right these it big does. birthdays it absolutely does now when i hit 60 you're going oh okay i can still fool some of the people then 65 you start getting the forms from the government all right about getting your uh, your government check your hush money from uh, from ottawa <laughs> hush money yeah then you realize while well, your children your kids are 33 and 30 you know and Kyle's who works here, obviously, is thirty-three. The younger brother, about to get married this summer, is thirty. He's just boom, it just happens. And sometimes I feel eighty-five. Other times I feel really, really young. But you have to you pick and choose. The young people don't want to. They don't. They don't care. And why would they? You know, when you roll your eyes, when your dad has a, when your dad has a story about the old days, right? Who cares? You know, well, when I was in you know, radio and you know, all your stories start like that. What now. I love about what I love about Radio, the radio gang. No one, no one, no one gives you any respect. You know, oh, shut up, old man. <laughs> Love that. That's great. Great camaraderie. Is that what people really? Do you really feel like that? Yeah, I really do. You don't want to, you know, because I'm pretty good. And people ask me about the old days. So I'll talk about it. I don't dwell on it. No one, no one cares. Oh, okay. You know, it's, it's different. Totally different. You know, is it help keep you young? And and you know, yep. I mean, you're so relevant and uh, up to date on yep. things well, that are going on in pulp culture and whatnot. Like, I never feel like I'm talking to my dad when I'm visiting with you, but you yeah. are older than him, That's, and <laughs> so I'm just curious as to how you manage to to stay relevant. Because I've always had an interest. You got to keep current. Like, for example, this Saturday I'm doing a bit on Paris Hilton. No, I'm just kidding. You see, she's out. Um, but that's oh, true. See, you know, see, he knows yeah. she's out. That's about, good. How about that Paris Hilton? <laughs> but it's true. I've always loved pop culture. Always loved entertainment stuff, even as meaningless it was. Uh, I keep in touch of uh, top of all the TV stuff, even though it's almost impossible. Uh, there's so much new stuff on. But wasn't Survivor great last night? Brett? Oh, tremendous! Yeah, good it stuff. Was a, it was yeah. a fabulous finale. Yeah. yeah, they're going back to Fiji, by the way, for season thirty-six. 35. Oh, sorry, 35. Yeah. 35. Crazy. It's impressive. Yeah. It's a big show. Just very quickly on Survivor, it's consistently one of the best, most watched shows in Canada. Yeah. Canadians love their Survivor, man. They do. And it's on Global, too. Yes. Plug. But- Greg, you okay over there? I'm fine. I just, I love sitting back and listening to you to chit chat. I love watching you interact with young people, Tom. <laughs> It's really you know, this a show is going to be called McGarry Mackling, okay? Very soon, all right? According McGarry to McGarry Mackling. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, why don't we take a break? We'll update some traffic and weather stuffs. And then uh, your son has put together a, an awesome tribute to you. It's some of it in your words and, and some of it with some outstanding flair that only Kyle yeah. can add to a piece. Yeah. And we'd love to play that for folks when we come back. It's Greg, Brett, and our very special guest with all respect. Tom Milroy on M- his 65th birthday. M-M-N-M. Wow. Oh, look at that. Three, three M's. M's. Oh, yeah. Can't use that. We just got sued. Thanks, oh, Tom. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Traffic and weather up next. Today, I am 65. Let me say that again. Today, I am 65. I said 65. Not 65 years young. That just sounds silly. As silly as you're as young as you feel. 
No one under 30 has ever said that. You know why? Because it's not true. I've been trying to think of all the good things about this particular birthday. Here's the list. Exactly. I do get a government check, of course, and I'll make sure to cash it in person at the bank. Because, you know, I find ATMs new and confusing. I'll be there before the bank opens and complain to the teller about the weather and bank fees and loud music. I know what that is. That's music. I'm very fortunate to be able to work part-time here at 680 CGOB. I have my show on Saturday from 10 till noon and come to the office a couple times a week just to tell the other employees what it was like in the old days. Young people love hearing stories about the old days. Like the time I caught the ferry over to Shelbyville? I needed a new heel for my shoe. So I decided to go to Morganville. Which is what they call Shelbyville in those days. How old is 65? Well, let me put it this way. The Beatles song, When I'm 64, is not relevant anymore, is it? And it came out in 1967, 50 years ago. Will you still need yep. me? Will you still feed me? When I'm 64. But then so, it stops. what are my immediate plans? Well, I will hunt for coupons. And then I can use at Swiss Chalet or Perkins tonight for dinner. <laughs> By tonight, I mean 4 p.m. <laughs> now, I was trying to think of the perfect song to end this piece. Just picture me walking off into the senior sunset, complaining about everything. When I was 17, it was a very good year. Hey, we're out of time. All right. For 680 CGOB. I'm Tom Milroy. <laughs> Happy birthday, Tom. Thanks, you guys. I've always thought of your part-time job here more as a work release program <laughs> than anything else. Yeah. <laughs> that nails it. Yeah. Just something to get you out of the house so you don't go stir-crazy at yeah. home. Uh, am I about done? I got dinner in uh, 40 minutes. No, we've got a couple more minutes with you. <laughs> okay. We've had text messages and phone calls, people wishing you happy yeah. birthday, and uh, one that said, Tom is old, that is all. But, you know, at least one request to hear some stories from the old days. Can you, can you give us one? I mean, I know we're putting you on the spot here, and you could probably make it up. We wouldn't know the difference. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably one we've already heard. But could it, could, like, you know, that... What a long, yes. illustrious career you've well, had in all seriousness. One of my favorite celebrity interviews happened in 1980. I was working for CKY, City FM, I guess, and uh, Van Halen were in town. So I got a chance to meet uh, David Lee Roth. And he was, uh, you know, had the long hair and the white, the white jumpsuit on. And my wife was going, wow. And uh, he did this wacky, I turned it on my tape recorder, he turned it this wacky, very animated interview for two minutes and he said you know is that okay in normal voice is that all right did you get what you want off we went that was very cool a caricature of himself yeah he, he got it you know he knew yeah. To, yeah so it was uh that was kind of yeah time of How day you doing, Tom? i love being that's on right. air with you here in winnipeg <laughs> that's right exactly right yeah that's perfect you are diamond dave in and, a past life and i never thought it was a job i always loved going to work other people complain about Mondays. I loved going to work. I mean, imagine being on the, well, you guys do. You're, people, you're talking and people are listening to you. you theoretically. Know? Yeah, theoretically. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's great. You say what you want. Basically, what, you're doing what you love to do. Talk. And people are listening. You know, what's, what's better than that? Well, one of the, the, the cool things about working the Saturday shifts mm -hmm. is that I, I just sit out in the newsroom and giggle 
listening to you and Kevin Bergen shoot the breeze about whatever. Yeah, it's good, yeah. It's I. There's no. I am what I am. You know, it's uh, me and Popeye. I, I just. Uh, there's no. I, I am. I can't. Don't have. I don't have a fake Tom Elroy and a real Tom Elroy. I'm the same guy all the time. So there's no pretense. There's no David Lee Roth. No David and, Lee Roth. And, that's and, right. And Tom Milroy. Exactly. Well, that's why we love you so much around here, Tom. And uh, all joking aside, uh, you work harder than anyone I know to put together uh, two hours of radio in a week. Uh, you come in when you need to to get the content required, and uh, it's. Uh, I know you're not leaving us, but on this day, we wanted to bring you in and thank you for what you've done for radio and oh, thank you man. for being a part of our family here because so, uh, yeah. you're important to us. Sounds like a eulogy. Oh my God. <laughs> what have you heard? What have you heard? <laughs> I can only go based on my observations. <laughs> oh, there you go. I figured the timing was pretty good to, to bring you in. Yeah. <laughs> Big tribute to you. Oh, thanks, you guys. But uh, been a pleasure. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and now very much like the, the title of the Blu-ray that you have in your hand. Would you get out? <laughs> I'll see you on the weekend. Going to have a look at weather and sports Thanks, coming up next. 3.38. Uh, you want to give some stuff away? I think that sounds like a, like a pretty good idea. It also sounds like Steve Earle. And we, in fact, have two Beat the Box Office tickets to give away to Steve Earle and the Dukes. Tuesday, September 26th at the Burton Cummings Theater. Tickets on sale this Friday at 10 a.m. But you can beat the box office right now. Need you to identify the song we are playing right now. Need you to name it and name the album it hails from. 204-780-6868. Again, the number 204-780-6868. Going to open the phone lines right now. And I'll get Jeff Fortier to fade the music down. Hopefully you know the answer by this point because the music's disappearing right now. Now, this weekend, uh, one of the more popular events of the springtime occurs. And it's one of those things that, you know, when you hear about it on the news on Tuesday night or pardon me, on Sunday night, you go, oh, geez, that was this weekend. I really wanted to go to that. (laughs) So we want to make sure we tell you about it well in advance. It's Open Doors Winnipeg presentation of Heritage Winnipeg. Cindy Tugwell joins us now. And Cindy, this is an event that I I think is uh, one of the uh, key events in helping us uh, relive and celebrate our incredible heritage buildings in the city of Winnipeg. Well, I totally agree. Um, I think we're we're thrilled. Um, this is our 14th year um, and helping to celebrate the history of Canada's 150 to showcase our amazing and unique uh, city that we have and the amazing architecture, um, cultural history, social history. Um, it really is a way for Winnipeggers and visitors to really learn, um, you know, all the uniqueness and, and amazing facts about Winnipeg. So uh, you go to the website, doorsopenwinnipeg.ca, and right away, I mean, it's a great website. It's got all these just sort of stuff to, to capture the attention of people who get easily distracted like me. Uh, <laughs> for example, there's one called Walking Tours. See yes. what special tours are happening this year. So what sort of stuff do you have in that? Well, just in general, this year we have 91 building and walking tours. So we're thrilled that every year we're able to grow this event, and it, it is becoming more and more popular. Um, so the diversity is is to have the walking tours along with the building tours. So this year, um, we've got the death and debauchery walking tour by the Exchange Biz, and uh, that one um, is extremely popular. And that really is theme tours, um, learning about the exchange and and all the different things that happened in the exchange. We've got an agricultural tour. Um, Forks has a tour. Um, The Ghost Signs tour is extremely popular. And the Haunted History tour, believe it or not, unfortunately, today I have to say it's sold out. 
Oh, wow. Well, and that isn't uncommon uh, for those ghost tours that take place. I know they're extremely popular. And the, and the, and the, uh, the ghost signs, I think yes. uh, all of Wonderful. Canada was exposed to those when the Amazing Race Canada came to town. And, and I've been, my awareness of them has been heightened ever since I saw the episode of Amazing Race Canada that featured Winnipeg. I think that um, um, it, it's, it's amazing what we don't see until it's brought to our attention. And when you look at these buildings and you look at the original um, ghosted um, advertising signs on these buildings and the kinds of uh, usages and, and the things that have been protected as part of the heritage designation of these buildings, um, you really have a great appreciation for this city. Um, also, the West End Biz Mural Tour, I'm, I'm to understand we have um, some of the largest um, quantity of murals in, in the country and they take you on a walking tour as to why these uh, murals are part of our social history of the West End. So there's something, I think, with the walking tours, the building tours, there's something for everyone. We even have Trolley 356 on Sunday taking people around on a historic replica uh, streetcar um, to enjoy some of the sights. I just need to circle back to the, the what you called the, did you say the death and debauchery tour? That is correct. So you want to take a walk on the wild side and explore the dark secrets that are made by Winnipeg's wicked cityest, wickest, wickedest city in the Dominion. So really a lot of people don't know our humble history as to a lot of young men came here at the turn of the 20th century. And uh, there weren't, uh, they came here from, really, there was not a lot of development. And so a lot of brothels and different things uh, started popping up all around uh, the downtown some of our most popular streets and famous streets uh, are named correct. after uh, women who uh, plied in a certain trade, yes? Well, I've taken the tour. It is fantastic, and you think you know this city? Take the tour, because you really don't until you take the tour. Before we let you go, Cindy, tell us a little more about Doors Open Winnipeg and some of the incredible venues that you can explore. I know the Vaughn Street Jail is always one of the more popular ones. Are there some others that you can highlight for us before we go? I can highlight some of the new ones this year. We're very proud to have the Canadian Human Rights uh, Museum giving a very special tour just for Doors Open this year. And I think it's very important to look at cultural spaces as part of historic property. So we're thrilled to have them. And we have the White House, which is commercial um, property and a stunning um, residential conversion, a couple of million dollar stunning residential conversion. And why some of these things are so important when you come to these buildings is to see how these heritage buildings are being redeveloped. We've got uh, military history with the new, um, with Minto Armory and McGregory Armories, um, both in new this year, Gordon King Memorial Church in uh in uh, the northeast part of the city, and St. George's Anglican Church, which is a modernist church. We like to showcase modern architecture as much as uh, 20th century architecture. And Hamilton House presentation in the northeast of the city, and we've expanded in Transcona with a walking tour and a historical locomotive tour. So I think it's the diversity, and the, the, I guess the... The, the, the pivotal one in all of this is the Hudson's Bay building one day only on Sunday. You can come and see the Paddle Wheel restaurant on the sixth floor oh and my. learn about the uh, historical um, um, background of, of the Hudson's Bay Company, the, the, the downtown store, and of course see the nostalgic um, restaurant as it was left when it closed five years ago. Is there a convenient way to get a schedule and maybe an itinerary in hard copy if uh, the internet isn't an option for you or maybe just feel more comfortable with something in your hand? Yes, we 
have the uh, wonderful um, free press insert that's uh, uh, full color, has a listing by geographical area and by museums in the city. Um, you can pick it up at Travel Manitoba at the Forks. You can also pick it up at the Heritage Winnipeg office and at the Millennium Library and any library branch. Cindy Tugwell, Heritage Winnipeg. Thank you for uh, doing this, Cindy. I know we were uh, communicating uh, while both of us were in meetings or on the air in my case. Thanks uh, for making time for us. This will be an exciting weekend for for you and your organization. Well, thank you. I'm really excited and thanks for having me. Uh, More than our pleasure. Thank you. Once again, Cindy Tugwell. Uh, Check out the website doorsopenwinnipeg.ca. Look at even Transcona's getting in on the game. Brett, that's fantastic to see this event broadening its scope and in terms of geography around the city. It's not just the downtown heritage buildings getting into the mix on this. And I just uh, one more comment on the death and debauchery tour. I think it's funny that when you go to this page on the doorsopenwinnipeg.ca website, there's uh, a feature, the, the picture that is shown is inside the Red River College downtown campus. So I think that's kind of fitting because I think a lot of students feel like they're going to die at any given moment while they're going through Red River College. And there's also a whole bunch of debauchery. <laughs> When stu- any whenever there where there are students, there's debauchery. Very astute of you, Mister McGarry. <laughs> Three forty-six traffic and weather together. Next, while we await Richard Cloutier and Julie Buckingham, we want to congratulate Keith Billis, who won today's beat the box office tickets to steal to Steve Earl and the Dukes. Tuesday, September twenty-sixth at the Burton Cummings Theater. Today's question: You had to name the song that we are playing. I'll just fire up the song again here. So you had to be able to name this song and the album that it's from. So the answer for the song is Nowhere Road. And it's from the album Exit Zero, I believe, although we also would have accepted Exit O. What did uh, Keith have to say? Exit zero. Okay. Very good. I'll take Keith's word on it over yours, Brett. No, I wasn't entirely (laughs) sure. It looks like exit zero, but I thought, you know what? Just in case someone says exit O, I'm not going to say no. Put it on the list? Yeah. Yeah. So congratulations, Keith. Enjoy the show. So I'll get Jeff to bring down that music as we welcome Richard and Julie to tell us what's happening on the news. Hi. Well, first of all, congratulations, you guys. Uh, You knocked it out of the park. Um, Not sure if people are aware of this, but the rating success of McGarry and uh, Macklin. Yeah, that's Macklin. Yeah. Uh, One to four. You guys knock it out of the park. Well done. Well, uh, congratulations right back at you. We appreciate uh, this. This this three minutes is key. This three minutes that we do right here Uh, is key to your show. I think it's key to your show, (laughs) but, uh, you know, if you want to go down that road, we certainly can. Yeah. Uh, So uh, let's trash the Mutual Admiration Society. It does not fit with our uh, normal tone of conversation. So uh, thank you, Richard. And uh, that's twice in two days, we've had nice things to say to you. Um, Shocking. What are you working on? Julie. Oh, you just moved right on from that. Okay. Yeah, sure did. Um, we are going to speak with the RCMP. They are highlighting uh, a very old case that actually was solved, but they're still not satisfied. This is uh, National Missing Children's Day, and they're bringing forth a case from 1978 in Steinbach. So bring that story to you and, and how they... Even though a case might be uh, as old as we are, 
not resting on their laurels and still not satisfied, even though someone is serving time in connection with the case. That's just after your four o'clock news coming up. So please stay tuned for that. And Richard, uh, this series that you've worked on with Sean Leslie at Global Television on Fentanyl is outstanding and creating a national wave. So congratulations on that. What have you got on that front uh, coming up? Sean's got further information on the story of this uh, attic. And um, we have been checking with, and this is where uh, our Global News colleague, Brittany Greenslade, comes in. Just all the other organizations that are affected by this. Imagine if you are involved in the postal system and these packages or envelopes are going uh, through the system there. What could potentially happen to you? We all get mail. Could be all, Our mail looking, could be contaminated. We're looking at that angle a little bit later this afternoon as well. And lots of stuff to share with you, but I am so proud. We're going to talk with some school patrols, some award-winning school patrols. They're um, really dedicated, some close encounters, and um, they get to wear the bright orange stuff now. When we were any of you patrols? Yep. Yep. I was a patrol. Did you have the the orange? Yeah, it was a big uh, bright orange vest with the yellow. Did you have the orange? Yeah, no, I think we just had the flag. You had the flag? I don't think we had the safety vest. You're not a patrol? That no. surprises me. I didn't get a flag. I lived, you didn't get a flag? Listen, first of all, I lived on an Air Force base. Then I lived in a town of 500. You fended for yourself. Right. So there, there was no go. patrol. Oh, Back in the last on century. On the gravel road. <laughs> Back in the last century when I was a patrol, we just had, this was in St. Norbert, right? So this was, we just had the white belts. The white belts. That's what it was, the patrol like belt. Yep, and the flag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. Richard Cloutier and Julie Buckingham, thank you so much. I'll have more from 4 until 7 on the news on 680 CJOB. Julie says they had to fend for themselves. I just, I picture her like sitting by a, a, a garbage can or something, <laughs> rummaging through the trash as Cloutier comes over to try to get some food and then she slaps him away. No, no! Just like a feral raccoon or something. <laughs> she makes it sound like she lives in some sort of apocalyptic, we fended for ourselves! Yeah, you know, that's just Julie. She's she's trying to paint a picture with her words. Yeah. She did that, and so did you. <laughs> that's all the time we have. I'm Brad. He's Greg. I'm going to go sketch that now. Jeff Forte and Master Control, thanks to you for listening to 680 CJOB.